more than a few words, a marketing conversation for small business owners. MTFW is a production of Roundpeg where we help small businesses become big businesses. Good morning everybody, this is Lorraine and this morning I am so excited. Um, we have the celebrity Paul Poteet as our guest. Good morning, Paul. Oh, I should have put on pancake makeup for this. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, uh, that's okay. We'll have pancake microphone. Um, <laughs> for those of you that are not familiar with Paul, um, he, and the reason I refer to him as a celebrity, is he's been an integral part of our weather and news media. Um, well, now I've been in Indy 20 years, and, and you've been somewhere on a TV <laughs> station or radio station pretty much um, for that entire time. Yeah, for 20 years just in the morning this year uh, and 30, 31 years in, in town this year. Wow. So um, traditional media, radio, television, and because you've been doing it long enough uh, today as you do a lot of stuff in social media, you're basically earning a living in a field that didn't exist when you started. Oh. Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, when I started was in 19, professionally at least, was 1979. I started in the 70s. <laughs> and no, we were not tweeting in the studio. You were doing all kinds of things in a radio studio. You could smoke in a radio studio back then, but uh, <laughs> you weren't you weren't tweeting. You, you could be a really successful radio person, and, and sometimes I do nostalgically kind of miss this aspect. Uh, you could be a really successful radio person at that time and never be seen or, or seldom be seen. Nobody would know what you would look like. And, and that is really kind of a key point. I want to start there because um, we were talking offline earlier about the characteristics that make um, made it easy for you to make this transition, you know, the skills and talents that allowed you to go from traditional to, to new media? Mm -hmm. Well, there are, it may surprise people to know that there are a lot of people who do uh, TV, maybe to a less extent, but definitely with radio, who they don't dislike the audience, but they don't necessarily want to be there next to them, to be performing in front of them, or have to be there amongst them. You know, they would just, they'd be happy doing the radio show and just kind of doing it in, in the booth and, and not getting out. Or maybe the television anchor would be happy just to be in the TV studio with a with the crew and the camera and the lights and, and not be out there amongst people. I mean, it is kind of a different thing performing in front of people and performing in a studio. Well, the new media has sort of made a lot of things, has changed the aspect of, of TV and radio to the point where a lot of things are just constantly public performances because people know what you look like. And if you're a radio person, they want you, your radio station's going to want you to put up pictures of you in the studio and video of you in the studio. But when I started, you could easily bypass that. Now, however, I did end up, just because I did enjoy the interaction right away, I ended up pretty early on doing lots of promotions. I started in radio in, in Fort Wayne, as I say, a long time ago, back where uh, where I met my wife, the lovely Mrs. Poteet. We worked at a radio station that was very promotionally active. It was a big top 40 station in Fort Wayne. And so you would do a lot of uh, what we called appearances back then. You know, back then it was a whole, you know, if you were out in public, it was an appearance. It was a big deal. And so I really enjoyed doing those. I started hosting events, emceeing events, which I've done all the way through since I've been in Indy. But I started doing that actually in Fort Wayne at the ripe old age of probably 16 or 17 when I started, you know, hosting things for people. And so I think 
the fact that I enjoy the interaction with people made it a lot easier to, once these tools came along where you were constantly interacting with people, I think that just seemed a, a natural step to me, even even at my advanced age <laughs> at the time, you know, once I got on uh, Twitter and Facebook, I mean, I was well into my 40s at that point, but it, it just seemed to be a natural extension of that audience interaction, and the thing is, you get all of these, all of this feedback that you didn't get before, and you say something that you think is halfway funny on TV or on the radio, I would, you know, kind of repeat that online or whatever, and then, and then people would come back with, so, and kind of pick up on it and bounce it back to me and have comments or an angle on something, a twist on something that was just as funny as anything I'd done, and then I would repeat that on TV, you know, it becomes sort of a, a, a loop there, mm -hmm. and it just added a whole new dimension to me on the air that wasn't there before, and that and that I may have had a little bit earlier than some other people in in the market too, just because I would be so active doing it. And I think that's a, that's sort of an important um, aspect of the transition from traditional media to new media is this interactive loop. The fact mm -hmm. that what happens online ends up on the radio, what happens on the radio. Feeds, feeds the online, and I think the, the quality of the output is much better. And I think you just have to be, I think this all of this media seems to favor people who can produce a lot of output. <laughs> <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is that I keep talking a lot. Uh, uh, that if you just, if you're the kind of uh, content maker or the, or the kind of person who has, uh, you know, I've got this great 10 minutes of radio in me per week and, and nothing else. If I think it favors people who are able to just be on a lot. You know what I mean? Does that make any sense? I think sometimes, although you're not going to be rewarded in the end strictly for volume, I think there is some reward for being able to put out enough content on a consistent basis that that people get used to seeing you there. If you've only got one great line in you every month, then maybe not so much. I, I think you absolutely are right there that the medium, because it's so fast, um, it does it does require a lot of new and fresh information. And if um, you can repeat some things, but I don't think that you can. Um, lean back on, you know, well, I said that this morning, I'll just share it again on Twitter and see how much more interaction I can get. I, I, I don't think the medium is that forgiving. Yeah, one thing that is really, really different, too, is uh, is the whole topicality on the radio. If something, if an event happened before some big event, I in the evening, I would be making a mental note to myself, oh, how can I use that, you know, in some comment tomorrow on one of my radio stations or on TV or whatnot, well, you know, I, that never even enters my mind now. I just, you know, do it online right away, and then hopefully something new will have occurred to me by the next morning on the radio, but that whole idea of saving something just doesn't fly anymore because of the timeliness. It's very hard to, to compete with the timeliness of these new media items by sitting on something. And TV stations still try to do this to a certain extent. We have the one thing in your medicine cabinet that's going to poison little Susie. <laughs> your whole family is at risk of dying. Find out Friday night at 10. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, guess what? If it's really something that serious, people are going to start Googling what's going to kill little Susie. They're not going to wait that long. And so 
TV stations have to, you know, turn to you know, more more of an inter enterprise uh, type of reporting to find things that aren't as easily found online, and maybe to you know develop more of their personalities or whatever to bring things to the table that you can't find already online. That's one continuing challenge for older media. Well, and I also think um, it's. Uh, they're adapting and, and accepting that this interactive is part of it. You know, when you watch the Super Bowl, you saw the commercials that had the hashtags and dealing with the reality that people had seen a lot of those before the show even aired. Oh, yeah. Uh, the brands will, the companies will, that's just part of their scheme. They're not only going to pay the money to be on the Super Bowl, they're also going to try to get people to, to share it via YouTube and, and whatnot, and sometimes they'll be ginning up some controversy about it, uh, which will is an easy route to getting things shared a lot of times, too. But it's it's definitely, yeah, There's uh, there may have been a, a point in time for a couple of years where old media and, and television stations and radio stations just you know kind of sat there with their mouth open, but I, that time has passed. I can tell you, for example, that a large part of, of what I do on the weekend, especially right at the beginning of the of the workday with with Channel Eight, is is all focused on on the website and on uh, that portion of, of new media for them, to making sure that all of the information and they've built sort of an infrastructure now that helps to do this efficiently. But making sure that all the weather information that you would see at six a.m. when you turn on the television set is also online. To, to treat that just as seriously as they would treat a deadline for a newscast, and that's all, you know, that's all brand new, obviously, in the last couple of years. I mean, I saw that from the, when I walked into back into television here in the city in 1995. I mean, that just—I think we had actually Channel Six had one of the first, you know, websites that was that was really active in, in putting some stuff up online, and I think they may have been on by 95 or 96 with um, with Indie Channel. But at first, when I first got there, the extent of the content was that they would upload, you know, copy and paste the, the scripts from the TV show. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what you would find online. And you know what, back then that was cutting edge, but I think, you know, today's media consumer is, is more savvy, it's more common um, that people will watch television with an iPhone nearby. Oh, I constantly do that in the evening, and I get a lot of work. You know, I could never do all the stuff I do if I didn't you know, do some of it while, you know, there's some uh, housekeeping things and such that you can do while you're watching TV, and I think that's, I, mean, I don't think I'm the only one who's uh, sitting there, as you say, with a, either the iPad or a laptop, or at the very least, just a telephone, and ready to comment about what you want. It's like you're watching... A TV in a big room, big auditorium filled with people, especially with an event like the Super Bowl. I mean, those live sports events are the one thing that television still, you know, can really, really take hold of because you can't see it later on on DVD, or if you do, the moment has passed, or you can't see it on Hulu down the road or Netflix. So that's a big deal for them, but even with that big deal, they still have sort of been encroached upon by people sitting at home and making themselves part of the show, too, by watching it together on Twitter or on Facebook. And, you know, that's one of the things I think that's a real challenge for, for TV, um, for presenters at conferences where there's an active hashtag. Um, 
you are getting that feedback real time, whether you want it or not. <laughs> well, right. I mean, look at what happened during the Super Bowl. Just assume, you know, what, what's your first instinct when you notice all of a sudden that somebody <laughs> finally has shut up Phil Sims and uh, he's just stopped talking at the end of a sentence and there's this awkward just shots of, of, of the stadium with no audio and, you, and then they suddenly go to a commercial and you're thinking, well, that's not. What's the first, you know, you look down at the Twitter timeline. Mm-hmm. And you realize, oh, everybody else has noticed this too, and then you read a million different theories. So it's it's interesting how quickly the timeliness of it has has competed and interfered with the traditional. You know, think of the way that the radio stations and television stations disrupted newspapers with their timely coverage. You know, back in the day, back in the '60s and in the '70s, and it, now they're, you know, now the wheel is turning, and now they're getting a taste of that too, with people disrupting their, you know, once uh, timely coverage from a TV standpoint by covering events or at least commenting on events online. Absolutely. I mean, and when the lights went out during the Super Bowl, um, there's a couple of things I noticed. One, how funny people are, how quickly. You know, some of the the people talking about what was causing it. But also, um, companies that were prepared, not necessarily that they anticipated that the lights would go out, but that they're just so dialed into social that when things happen, like the Oreo cookie ad, they are prepared to respond and to be part of that conversation. Sometimes, and this is where you know, certainly new me or old media training has, has served me well too, because I'm in situations on the radio where I can really uh, bring a lot of value to a morning show if if I'm able to respond to something that I have no idea. You know, I dial in and I hear something going on, and then if I can come up with with a a good response to that to add on to what they're doing, then the, that makes you know the show better and that makes me look better. Well, that. That little bit of old media training has served me well too. Sometimes online, because sometimes it's not the most clever thing or the or the most insightful thing, but it's just the most timely or topical little joke or line about something. If you can, you know, boom! If you can get it in there right away after something has happened, then people will go nuts and it'll get you know, retweeted a lot or shared a lot. Absolutely. Out social media has changed traditional media. Well, the answer that that I was just giving, I think we were talking specifically. Oh, you were mentioning that with the with the heavy snow that fell in Indiana back in December, that you saw a lot of pictures of it online by a a Twitter or Facebook or whatever. And I mentioned that every television station now, it's just part of the assumed coverage that they're going to invite people to submit their pictures which is is a great way to open up views that you wouldn't have seen as a viewer otherwise. And, surprise, surprise, it's also a great way to get free content for the TV station. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I'm, I'm not here to you know, try to pick a side between old and new media because I work with both of them. And so it's a great way for uh, traditional media to use essentially new media to make themselves more relevant. But what I was saying was that it does change some things. If you're, it's just like it changes things. If you're a travel agent, you no longer are the gatekeeper to the airline tickets, to that special package to Cozumel that you knew about before. And if you're uh, a photographer, a videographer with a with a television station or with a newspaper like Indy Star, 
you no longer are not necessarily the only way that somebody will see a news event. And in both of those cases, the most obvious effect of that in a business sense is that if there are other markets and if you have more competition, which you do from all of these you know, amateurs, whatever you want to call them, or, or pe- non-professionals, then the price that people generally are willing to pay you or the number of people, of travel agents or, or photographers or, or TV people in general, the number needed isn't as big as it used to be. And so you've got to figure out then, if you want to keep doing it, a different way to add value to what was more of a utility before because other people can use technology to do that thing too. So in the case of what I do, the weather, I mean, you can get the weather from a million, it's what, the, like the second most popular <laughs> category on the Internet? <clears throat> and I can't do the first most popular category. I just don't have a figure for it. So anybody could get the weather for free. Any of my radio stations could log on today and get it from the National Weather Service for free. A couple of them have been approached a couple of different times by TV stations who are willing to do it for free, you know, in exchange for advertising. So uh, you can either uh, tear out your hair or tear out your toupee if you're me, or you have to find a way to add value to it to take that, you know, the base of what everyone has access to it and, and try to find a way either through uh, analysis of it or, or to put a spin, you know, put your own personal spin on it. That's one of the common ways to do that. Now, just find some way to offer something that people can't get elsewhere, you know, so much more easily and cheaply. Absolutely. Okay, so um, let me switch gears a little bit. And one of the things we're going to do, Paul, is we're actually going to cycle back around. Um, after the program is over, we're going to re-record that first part. So if anybody's listening and feels like they missed the earlier part, we'll have that um, in the downloadable version. But for now, I want to switch gears and talk about when you first made this transition, did you have a plan when you left daily television and you started doing social media as a career? Well, I didn't. Well, part of my plan was that, I, you know, I wouldn't strictly do that. I mean, more than anything else, I wanted to be able to do anything else, if that makes any sense. You know, one of the problems, one of the roadblocks that I was running into at the end where the, at the place where I was working every day was that they were spending too much time managing things that I did outside of the building or, or that, that, that I, places that I worked with outside of the building. I might be on the radio technically from inside of the building, but they were beginning to throw some roadblocks into that direction, in my humble opinion. And so I knew, if nothing else, that I wanted to be able to have the freedom to do anything that I wanted to do. And if you worked with me, you understood that. And obviously, if you're a TV station, you're not going to work. You know, I work with Channel 8 right now. Well, I'm not going to work at the same time with with Channel 13 or with Channel uh, 6, whatever. That's fine. But in other parts of the media, you know, I still want the the ability to be able to work with the radio stations that I choose to work with or the, the websites, the Indie Star or the other websites that I that I work with. So my plan was to not limit myself at all. Uh, if I had any kind of ongoing plan, I mean, it's been going on for years and years, and that was, I mean, this dates back to the, <laughs> believe it or not, to the 1980s. Uh, after getting fired about the third or the fourth time, it it occurred to me that perhaps 
much in the same way that, you know, how many people buy one stock for their retirement or one mutual fund? Why in the hell should I be limited to one place of business? You know, why should I? And so I made it a point from the mid to late 80s on to seek out other things. When I worked at radio stations, even back then, I, you know, I worked at Channel 4 and for a radio station at the same time. I syndicated uh, sports shows with in the late 80s and early 90s with, with Ted Kitchell and Steve Alford. I did that while I was working with, uh, with Channel 4 and with a radio station. And even in the early 90s, I worked at the same time. I did some radio in the early 90s. I did some weekend TV up in Lafayette. From that point on, I just decided there wasn't going to be only one source. And, we, and from the very moment that I started at Channel 6, I was already doing radio weather uh, for other uh, radio, you know, for other radio stations in Terre Haute and in Lafayette that had started in the early 90s. So I already had decided, you know, to myself that regardless of old or new media, which wasn't a, which wasn't a, you know, a factor in 1988, uh, that I would have different sources. That I would be, I would put my eggs in in different baskets. And so all of a sudden, when these new media avenues came along, then I thought. Uh, my eggs should go there. Boy, that sounds dirty, doesn't it? <laughs> no, but <laughs> which cycles back then to the single most common use of the um, of the internet. Um, but going forward, <laughs> touche. Going forward from there, as you look at all of the things that you've done, um, and we started to talk about this earlier, what do you think was your um, favorite project? What was the thing that worked best in uh, leveraging new media, and then also maybe what was something that you that didn't work as well? Well, the thing that probably worked best right away was uh, something that we launched and that you got involved with at some point too was the uh, the series of restaurant profiles, and they were they kind of developed they morphed pretty quickly from just doing video profiles of restaurants uh, to actually having these little events at restaurants where the creation of the video <laughs> would become, you know, the event would be part of the content. And so it all sort of fed each other, if you pardon the pun. And so it was called Pulpo Teats Gotta Eat. And John Karamansky, who is a, a marketing and real estate uh, guy here in town, came up with that title. And at the time, having just given up a, a lucrative uh, full-time job, uh, it had several different meanings. So uh, when he told me, I've got this idea for Paul Poteet's Gotta Eat, I mean, I was already sold when I heard the, the name of it. And so that where we went to different restaurants and we would sell the restaurant a, a, an advertising, a kind of a marketing package that was based on, doing a video for them and having an event for them and then using online, you know, using Twitter and Facebook to publicize not only the video and the link to the video and whatnot, but also to talk about the event. That was a lot of fun and it and, and clicked pretty well right away. And so that was, it was fun and it was reassuring that, first of all, that people would still kind of follow me even though I wasn't on, on television every day. And we did that uh, for quite a while. That was my, what, the some of the things that didn't work out as well. I we tried for a while doing like um, almost like little mini magazine things, little profiles of things going on over over the weekend. I think that got into too much of, of stuff that TV was could already provide. You know, the traditional TV stations could provide and do that on their website. You know, just as well. You know, like uh, profiles of, of weekend events and things like that. That just it, it was a little too labor intensive and a little too time consuming for uh, the bang from the buck. 
Cool. Well, and uh, I actually did attend a couple of the Paul Petit's Got to Eat, and those were fun events. Um, and I think timing has a lot to do with it, too. I mean, that was... Oh, that would have been what's about three years ago right now. And there are a lot of people, you know, it's funny to uh, say that, boy, there were less people on Twitter back then. But, uh, I mean, it, 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 it is a much wider net than what it was at the time. And I think a lot of the early adapters maybe in Indianapolis that I still see online, but I think that was just one of the early events to kind of coalesce around. And so just happened to, you know, maybe get lucky on the timing with that to a certain extent also. Absolutely. Okay, we have a question from Ben Reisinger, and we're mm-hmm. running low on time, so I want you to go soundbite on this one. <laughs> but Ben Reisinger was at Good Morning, Ben, by the way, and congratulations on your engagement. I saw that yesterday, yeah. Um, so how do you deal with negative responses? You know, I don't really uh, – I hate to say this because I hate to, you know, bad, to, to invite the obvious, but I don't really get a whole uh, – a lot of other than just, you know, standard stuff. People get very uh, peeved when the, uh, when the winter forecasts are wrong, which they are – they're wrong more than they are in the summertime just because you notice it more, smaller differences in precipitation. So, I mean, other than people – uh, just ragging about that, you know, I don't, uh, I, I guess people are just maybe self-selecting with me if they don't care, or if they think I'm an idiot or whatever, they just don't follow me. You know, I think that's, um, uh, that's a big fear. In general, I think businesses are afraid, what if people say something negative? Um, in, for the most part, there are some social media trolls out there. The most the most consistent negative stuff, and it still wasn't a lot, but we would get when Tom Davis and I were doing the the off the cuff comedy stuff for the IndieChannel dot com, just because we had, we'd have these bizarre videos in the middle of a news site, probably. Uh, we would get you know I would get some uh, pretty strong mail about that. But I, I think for the most part, I think I think you you nailed it when you said you know people are. Um, they either don't listen or they either like you or they don't listen. And, and I think that's the, the, the real challenge is just to continue to be like. Ooh. <laughs> okay. That's so, a very, very definite time, time cue there. Yeah. So as we're wrapping up, and again, I'm going to call you back afterwards so we can re-record the first part of the show. I want to make sure that people know where to find you. If they want to follow your adventures on Twitter or check out your website, where do they go? Well, it's still uh, it's been there since 1998, believe it or not. PaulPoteets.com. It's a one man. You know, I still run the whole damn thing myself. So it's hello, 60 seconds. It's uh, PaulPoteets.com, and of course, you know, mornings on seven different radio stations, and for people here in town, WZPL over 15 years with the Big Nine Nine, and on IndieStar.com, and uh, weekend mornings on Wish TV. Awesome. And if you want to catch up with Paul on Twitter, you can look for him. At Paul Post Week. <laughs> or I should just change the name. I mean, I've had enough people make the obvious uh, connection there. <laughs> you should probably grab that handle, too. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been awesome. No problem. Um, if you've enjoyed today's program, if you want to hear more about social media and marketing in general, you can always check out our blog at roundpeg.com. This has been another episode of More Than a Few Words. Thanks for listening.